This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Doubleline Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Doubleline has no obligation to provide updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to the latest episode of The Sherman Show. I am Jeff Sherman, along with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today is Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. And uh, we are recording uh, both for the audio version as well as for our YouTube channel. So if you're listening to the audio version and you want to see uh, Sam's beautiful locks today, um, you can go to the YouTube, youtube.com backslash double line capital and and sam i am very jealous today you've got really good flow uh over there on on the camera today so thanks for joining me sam yeah we went from uh just hard crazy hard water at the at the lao household and we just got water softener so maybe that's it yeah i thought maybe it's that new uh per plus plus you were uh talking about using so um with that uh sam why don't we introduce our guest today our guest is none other than russ ivan jack uh, he is a senior partner. He is also the global CIO over at Aon. Uh, Aon is also is a consulting firm, but also they do uh, investment research. Uh, Russ oversees the team of investment research in addition to moonlighting as the global CIO. Uh, he's also uh, in charge of also the global asset allocation there and his discretionary client portfolio management. So Russ, uh, not sure how you had enough time in the day to join us as well with all those roles, but thank you for joining us. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. And obviously, it's a, a pleasure to be here. And uh, with those several roles, really, the key there is just helping to oversee and manage uh, talented teams here. Yeah. All right. So with <laughs> that, um, maybe you can give us a little bit more about what you do to manage those teams and, and oversee that talent and kind of, you know, what, what is a typical day? I, how did you get to this kind of position in life? And then further, what's a typical look like, a day look like for the global CIO? Ooh, all right, let me, let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, so throughout my career, I've always worked with institutional investors directly. So I've always worked with a handful of clients, but uh, what has always been my passion is research. So whether it's on the markets or investment managers. So I have held a number of research positions that started with real estate back in the 90s when it was completely illiquid, blended into the defined contribution marketplace, then into global equities, uh, started our private equity research team, our real estate research team, um, and then eventually uh, took over as the global CIO, overseeing each of those teams uh, as we were senior professionals uh, managing each of those teams. What is really different for us as a consulting firm is the marketplace has evolved into what's called outsourced chief investment officer. So we take discretion of our clients' assets within guidelines, and we implement it with investment management firms across the globe. So how do I find time to get through the day and what do I do? I like to joke that I approve a lot of expense reports as our research team goes to meet with managers on site um, and doing due diligence. Well, uh, really a lot of it is just managing things day to day, making sure, you know, starting the I's, crossing the T's as we're researching 
investment managers, but also pushing the teams to innovate. The markets are always evolving. We need to evolve with the markets and with investment managers' capabilities. And that's the, the key thing is setting that, I would call the risk posture of how we align ourselves with the investment managers as they run portfolios, and then making sure we meet our clients' needs in terms of what their objectives are. So how do you think about that lens of risk, right? We always hear about risk management and different processes for risk. So describe uh, potentially like a framework of how you would talk to one of your OCIO or outsourced CIO clients about risk. Well, we, we break it down into really three different areas. So the first is, I'll just call it, you know, setting the strategic policy. So if it's a corporate pension plan, and let's say it has a 20-year time horizon that we're looking at, we are obviously doing quite a bit of modeling around how much volatility they can take. What's, you know, the most they want to lose? What does their contribution policy look like? How much illiquidity or lack thereof illiquidity they're willing to bear in the portfolio? So that'll set how much they allocate to stocks, to fixed income, real estate, private equity. So that's the, the first level of risk we work with on. The second then is let's implement in the asset classes they chose. So obviously there's the classic active-passive discussion and debate by asset class, how many managers. And then when we've identified the benchmarks for each area, how much risk to take versus each of those uh, benchmarks used. And then lastly, implementation with investment managers. Is it broad mandates? Is it concentrated? Is it the mix of the two? Uh, those are the key things in what we look at with risk. So it has a very long-term perspective, but also very much focused on the implementation and what you can experience over you know, a quarter or even a year. So and that, that'll keep clients sure. focused. Oh, yeah, and no, I mean it's it's very client driven. Obviously, they're 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 hiring you to help build this for them. But as you think about, you know, uh, for our listeners out there that aren't familiar with a strategic asset allocation that that you described there, can you talk about the difference between what you deem a strategic allocation? A lot of folks hear about the word tactical asset allocation. How those things mix together, and again, let's then bring it back in that risk lens of how. You formulate those two things. Uh, great question. So the strategic is, uh, we'll look at what the return objective is of the client, that time horizon, and then the more qualitative thing, which is their risk tolerance. So let's just say they decide to go 50% stocks, 50% bonds. That would be the strategic allocation. You know, we can run models with 5,000 scenarios and look what's the you know best return they could expect to receive and what's the worst return they could expect. Uh, to experience over a 12-month period, over a three- or 10-year period. Then there's the tactical. So let's go implement that. Do we find markets rich in certain areas? And how much can you vary versus that 50-50 benchmark? Typically, most clients are pretty close to that, you know, that neutral point. They may be one to two percentage points above or below at any point in time. And then what we really look at is the investment managers we employ um, for our clients' portfolios, where are they taking risk? And what's their skill set and making sure they're expressing their viewpoints um, appropriately in portfolios? Okay, so now let's take it to, I heard you say, you know, stocks, bonds, and I heard something about private placements as well. So yes. private equity and private credit. How do you think about those asset classes today? Uh, how, how do you think about those relative, let's say, the public markets and how do you think about potentially taking on illiquidity in some of these markets? Mm -hmm. 
Well, we've encouraged our clients to allocate to the private markets um, for, for decades, both private equity, private credit is, you know, a newer um, allocation for many clients, but it's been in place for well over five years for most clients. We think of an extension of the public markets. We do expect a premium um, over the public markets because of the liquidity, but it's really an extension of that opportunity set. Just because a company is private doesn't mean you might want not access you know, the value they're creating, whether it's equity or lending the money on the private credit side. And one thing that we are really conscious about with our clients is making sure their portfolio can handle that illiquidity. So what's the right allocation? We have clients who have five or 10% allocated to the private markets, others who have up to 40% allocated to the private markets. Um, those with the higher allocations, they've been in the private markets for decades. And it's really those allocations have been built up um, over time. They've had success and then continue to stick with it. Good. Okay, so let's now step back. So we've kind of defined the framework uh, of thinking about pockets of where one can invest. So now let's let's formulate this top-down framework. What is your view kind of of the macro environment? What is your view of kind of the allocations today? And you know what what are you uh, either advocating for clients to really be taking a look at, or what are you hearing on the other side from your clients the things they want you to take a look at? So kind of the opportunity set is where I'm starting with. Yeah. Well, the opportunity set, uh, I guess, first and foremost, uh, maybe we should say we're glad we're through the, the quick spike in interest rates we went through in 2022. Uh, you have a better base to build portfolios from, right? Cash is earning you 5%, core fixed income, uh, you're earning about the same amount. So you have much more of a buffer in portfolio. So that provides, I would say, much more opportunity to where you allocate going forward. Uh, what we're concerned about is looking at the environment. It's an environment we haven't been through in you know, 20 plus years, higher inflation. Uh, the economic data we receive, it seems like is far less reliable than it was just three, four years ago. We, I, used, I joke that we used to worry about the 0.1% percent difference in GDP or inflation. And now we're worrying about one, two or three percentage point differences in the reads that come out. And that causes much more volatility in portfolios. Now, how that translates to how clients implement is absolutely critical. And that's why we are going through numerous strategic studies with our clients, walking through those scenarios. We call it, you know, blue sky scenarios, a recessionary scenario, stagflation, or even dark sky scenarios. So they can gauge What's the right portfolio to implement? Oh, I, I really like that phrase, yeah. dark, dark sky. I like that dark. phrase. What's a dark sky scenario? Oh, dark sky. Basically, think about it as a, a more or less a depression um, where we see significant negative growth has a significant impairment on financial assets in clients' portfolios um, over a you know fairly short period of time. So I think, think, Great Depression, probably a little bit worse than the great financial prices. Okay. Uh, maybe a, 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 a prolonged uh, what we experienced during March of 2020, potentially. Yes. Yeah. Add on 36 months to that. Yeah. Oof. Can you imagine? Uh, can you imagine that? Yeah. So I guess a whole lot of ideas around this um, that you've thrown out there, Russ, uh, but just kind of putting it all together. How do you think about portfolios and your approach to it when 
blending these ideas that you talked about, you know, building your views on your in the on on the world into the portfolios, be it you know dark sky or bright sky type of scenarios, integrating the different aspects of this, you know, having a, a longer term resilient strategic type of positioning relative to a portion perhaps set out for tactical. And then just really, you know, the asset classes themselves, you know, the, the public versus the private, the traditional versus non-traditional. As a whole, how do you put all that together into your, into the way that you manage or think about the portfolios? Well, you hit upon a key theme with our clients, which has been building resilience in portfolios. And I think that theme has struck throughout uh, because so many people have, frankly, relied upon that 60-40 naive portfolio, the S&P 500 and the core you know, investment grade portfolio that worked quite well for 10 years. But the resilience was how do you build a portfolio around that that actually can earn you higher returns, better diversify you, and roughly take on about the same risk. And so that was adding the private markets into the portfolio. You can get that additional return. You get obviously some risk reduction in certain areas. Um, adding areas like infrastructure, for example, was a big theme. Diversifying in both fixed and floating rate debt helps portfolios. So it, a lot of the changes happened incrementally over time in the build out of uh, our client portfolios. There was not, I would call a rapid fire change of let's move 20% out of equities and move it to private equity. That did not happen. It's very deliberate. Institutional investors are very deliberate on the reallocations. Uh, what's critical, though, is with our investment manager research teams, as they look at firms, identifying what their skill set is, how they're going to add value, what's their you know unique source of value add or alpha they're bringing to the portfolio. Is it is it one pm? Is it their views on the marketplace? Is it their quantitative capabilities? All that comes into play then as we implement portfolios. And the one thing we're always conscious of is we think with investment management firms, there are you know hundreds, if not thousands of skillful firms, but they're all competing against each other and they arbitrage away their advantages over time. So, so when you come to, to thinking about that too, how, how do you think about when you drill down like in sector allocations or you get something that's less broad, right? Um, because just what you said, you know, makes me think that, you know, as things get more competitive, they get a bit more commoditized. Um, you know, if everybody sees that opportunity set, it tends to diminish over time, right? That's the the fallacy of research. The more you publish uh, and you tell people your ideas, you know, people take people jump on them as well. So how, how do you think about that when trying to allocate either on more narrow parts of the market or things that are less competitive? Do you think about trying to expect a premium for that? And how has that changed over time? Well, over time, I would say what is changed over time is we will use firms with more niche capabilities when they're able to demonstrate certain segments of the marketplace that they do have an advantage. Mm -hmm. uh, what we also consider, though, is when you allocate to a firm who has multiple capabilities, it could be across you know, broad areas and have some niche capabilities, what's their ability to execute on relative value? And who's that? Is that a top-down decision or is it purely bottom-up or a combination as they decide to allocate that capital. Uh, one of the issues with niche players is with institutional investors, many times we're dealing with very large sums of money and there's only so much capacity that you can access from those niche players. So balancing off, allocating to, to the broad firms 
and versus those niche firms is a constant challenge because they, they do, I would say, arbitrage away some of their advantages over time. Yeah, and then um, when you think about too, like certain pockets of the market, like the number of managers there, um, you know, I've always thought of that the the alpha is inversely proportional to the number of managers, right? So if it's a small sandbox, then there's, you know, uh, well, it's a sandbox. If there's a few people in it, there's more treasure out there than yeah. if there's, you know, thousands of people. So do you ever consider that when thinking about uh, certain sectors of the market or is that too narrowly focused? No, it's a great question. It's something we've dealt with. I'll pick, for example, small cap equity that... Uh, from time to time, some of the top firms can be capacity constrained. And we've said to clients, hey, this, right now we can't identify for you the top firms who are open for new assets. So let's take a pause and rethink about allocating. So it is something we do consider that uh, capacity constraints, the size of the marketplace does play into allocation decisions. Yeah. And then um, one more question kind of on, on thinking about just defining the landscape too. Um, you, you mentioned like real estate. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, investment in kind of private real estate over the last few years. Um, how do you access that market? Do you go through REITs? Do you do more private? Um, you know, we know that essentially a lot of retail investors, you know, one of their largest assets is their own home, right? So yes. uh, again, just trying to think about this for more institutional type of players. Uh, institutional investors have accessed, um, there's a couple of vehicle types, what I call a private read or limited partnerships and to access the, the full array of commercial real estate, you know, office buildings, multifamily, industrial, um, even retail. What we've seen evolve over time is actually retail investors can also access that, uh, the private real estate, and not just access the real estate market through REITs, um, you know, the advent of interval funds or Broadly distributed private REITs have provided additional opportunities um, to the to the wealth marketplace, not only institutional investors. What we now see is more specific allocations across real estate. So it may just be to industrial real estate or just to multifamily real estate or even student housing. So you start seeing the market continue to bifurcate. And after many allocators, institutional allocators, have that broad-based allocation across the, the real estate marketplace. So kind of want to switch gears a, a little bit here, Russ. Uh, mm -hmm. Just wanted to pick your brain on how you're thinking about the world today. You mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, you're, we're, you're glad to have the, the rapid pace of rate hikes from all of the Fed you know, behind us in the rear view mirror. So from that perspective, now that we may have a pause in rate hikes, you know, depending on you know, what the Fed does in June, you know, there's been mixed messages, you know, from when we just saw Powell speaking uh, just last week, and then we heard Bullard and a number of others, you know, more on the hawkish front uh, mm -hmm. this week. How's your thinking evolved, you know, to kind of reflect per potentially a, a brief, you know, lull in terms of the pace of rate hikes? You know, we also have a lot of other headline news right now of the debt ceiling just bombarding us every day. Every time I seem to turn on the TV or, you know, look at headlines about the debt ceiling and, politicians and the X date. Um, and then on back of that, you know, we probably have a slowing economic growth, you know, story, at least here in the, the in the US and other parts of the developed world. So just wanted to see how your thinking has evolved from that, uh, the 2022 experience to where we might be going into into the rest of 2023. 
Yeah, and, and I potentially mentioned that higher rates has made it, I want to say, a little bit easier for us going forward. There's obviously numerous risks going on. And the reason for that is, you know, institutional investors have targeted returns going forward. Some may be as low as 5%, some maybe 7%, maybe up to 8%. But when you had treasuries, let's call it at 1%, it's really hard to get to 7 I mean, you have to really amp up the risk to the rest of the portfolio to take leverage on. Now that even just cash gives you five, it's just so much easier to get to those, um, the return requirements for our clients. So that is the first and foremost, and that's why we're looking at portfolio positioning. It's a bit easier going forward to get where clients need to be. But with that said, we do worry about, okay, what's this oncoming economic environment going to have in terms of defaults in the corporate credit marketplace, non-investment grade? So are you appropriately diversified in that area? Frankly, the equity markets has been such a great run until 2022. People are remiss to move money away because they earn so much. And I think it's that psychological aspect of saying, you know, you don't have to take as much risk to get to be, you know, get your return objectives met going forward. Yeah, I think I saw something like the trailing five-year S&P 500 return is something like 18%. That's even after last year, like per annum, that was the rate of return you got. That's exactly it. And so, you know, just being, you are able to pull back risk a little after a period of really for most investors having to be risk on. If you think about it, if we all knew in hindsight that the Fed was going to keep its foot on the gas for so long, we all probably could have just bought a levered S&P ETF and been really happy until 2022. Right. Yeah. So um, with that, how, how do you, how does like rebalancing come into play? Because we hear that with institutional clients, a lot of uh, retail folks and some of the wealth managers like to ride their winners and the thing. So how uh, how do you think about re- rebalancing? Is it something you do religiously? Is it something you do more out from these tactical plays? So walk us through that. Uh, we are very disciplined about rebalancing. So we set targets. I use that 50-50 uh, target before. Usually it's a range of plus or minus 5%. If you are Outside those ranges, we rebalance within that range. I think one of the key things we do is use cash flows, whether money's coming in or coming out, to move it back into range. And we're, I want to say, market aware about where valuations are. Um, so we will take that into account in terms of where to deploy new cash coming and where to make take money out. But that disciplined, I want to say, somewhat boring approach has worked incredibly well um, over the last 10 years. Um, one one other investment related question I think uh, I wanted to get in at least uh, before switching topics here is I just wanted to get a sense of are there any longer term trends that you're looking at today that might impact your clients in the coming years that you know may not have been there you know pre pandemic let's just say um, you know inflation is definitely a, a topic that people really weren't talking about as you know, much as they probably should have going before the the pandemic but now it's on everyone's radar um, you know the expectation for returns you know perhaps you know lower returns moving forward from where we are today you know we were talking about the strength of the equity market continued strength of the equity market is that something that you know we can expect to to change I think in, in the future in terms of the expectations that your clients have when they're thinking about their 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 future path and this overall increased market vol, I guess, that we've had since the pandemic as well. Are there are some of these things, uh, longer term trends that you see impacting portfolios for, for your clients going forward? And then if so, you know, 
how are you helping them face these challenges? Well, uh, there's numerous uh, trends. I think one of the trends from a secular standpoint that we're looking at is our clients' cash needs, right? How much do they need to be to pension plan fund to meet benefit payments, if it's endowment to meet their bequests, insurance company to meet their claims. It's I, I mentioned before, it's easier with cash and yields higher. But one of the things that investors need to look at is peel back the onion and look how they're actually investing, right? If you pull back the S&P 500, it's far more concentrated than it was five or 10 years ago. Pull back the investment grade indices, you'll see them more concentrated than they were years ago. Uh, so investors need to recognize where their unintended risks lie. I think, you know, people like to wring their hands about a 25 basis point position in certain securities when frankly their exposure to Apple is five times that, 10 times that in some cases. So understanding where the risks are present in the portfolio, I think is absolutely critical. And you know, frankly, getting your hands dirty and understanding what those positionings are is, is something we're very focused on. That that broader diversification or resilience is absolutely needed. All right. So on, on that front, let's shift gears to the other role in manager research too. So um, again, you're, you're overseeing the CIO process as outsourced CIO too. You're making these decisions and you have to hire the managers. So kind of, you know, we've heard about, you know, the, the five P's, uh, which are different from the six P's, but the five P's that people follow uh, when thinking about evaluating managers. Um, talk, to, talk to us about some of the metrics you think about and you know how how do you think about the importance of those metrics? But the key metrics, I mean, we look at is one. Obviously, we're looking for stable firms. That's easy. A firm in disarray is going to have our time managing money. Generally, we do look at their philosophy and approach. But the key thing there is matching up with their philosophy and process, and what their advantage is. So making sure those two stick together, and obviously, we spend a lot of time understanding the people who manage the money. So it's a lot of time on Zoom calls, it's in-person in meetings, it's monitoring portfolios even before we invest with them to know what they're saying matches their actual actions and that what we think their advantages is in terms of research actually come to fruition. So th those are absolutely critical. Uh, we are very sensitive to fees, but we don't put fees as an absolute. If we think somebody has skill, we look at, okay, what is that net return we think they can create going forward? And, and frankly, we think there is a limited use universe of firms who are truly skilled and can add value. So I, I like to say we focus our time after doing all our quantitative screens on the right-hand side of the bell curve, let's call it the top 25%, where we go in and do the fundamental work. And how do you think about emerging managers and stuff in there too, where some, you know, some people will have, you know, um, they want to uh, participate in an emerging manager or certain ethnicities or women led firm. How, how do you think about incorporating that too, where they may not have as much of that stability by definition emerging, right? Uh, that is true. And it's, it's uh, for clients who allocate to that and where we allocate on a discretionary basis to the emerging firms. One, it's a, a I'll say a point of pride in our research teams is identifying, you know, the, the diamond in the rough, the new upcoming firm. It's something that they can uh, really take pride in, but we recognize because they may start with one large client, if they lose that client um, out of the gate, the firm is financially unstable. So 
it is a you know very rigorous process, but it is a hallmark of I would say the pride of both our research team and our clients when they allocate to the emerging firms. Um, it may be a diversity program that they're focused on uh, within their portfolio, but it is a keen effort because frankly, the firms who are big today started as an emerging firm at one point in time. And frankly, our clients don't pay us just to take out the league tables and throw darts and give them the brand names. <laughs> so a couple of things that you mentioned early on, this, it, it caught my attention. So, you know, as investment managers here on Double Line, we tend to think about things from the scoreboard, right? What's quantitatively easy to for, for people who are evaluating us to check the box. But you also throw out a number of things that you evaluate on the non-scoreboard type of attributes, right? But mm -hmm. and I think that's important. You're getting to know your manager. You're talking about the philosophy and how that might match with performance moving forward. But that's the tough, that's that's the stuff that's more difficult to monitor going you know, over time. So what are some of the things that you and your you know, your team do when in, in terms of trying to monitor that non-scoreboard attributes over time just to maintain that consistency? Is it getting out there, you know, doing the face-to-face -face with the due diligence and talking with the managers? Because it's not something that they can just submit back through, you know, request for information. You know, how did you guys do over this three-year window, five-year window? You actually have to go out there and put boots on the ground, it sounds like. Uh, you absolutely do. You have to meet with folks in person. You, you need to understand what's going through their head when they're going through tough times in volatile markets. Right? Not, no manager always outperforms. And so understanding what they're thinking is when uh, going forward, thinking about the mistakes they made, how, why they made the mistakes, how they will remediate the issues that ran into the mistakes, or, or were they, quote, just early? Uh, one of the hardest things we really do as investors is practice patience because it's very easy just to look at a three-year number from a firm and say they're good or they're bad. But we know you you roll one quarter off and add another quarter and all of a sudden they go from you know not so good to brilliant. And so having patience with firms you believe in is probably the biggest I would say advantage we can bring to institutional investors is because our clients who've been patient over time are our best performing clients. Yeah. We, we like to say that around here too. Like you, you don't have to be the best one, right? Um, you know, the, the people who always try to be the best uh, performer, you know, they tend to slip up over time and sometimes you get yourself deep in a hole. But if you're just good enough, right? Being good enough year in, year out and being good enough over a following period, all of a sudden you're excellent or superb over time. And, yeah. you know, everybody's going to have those missteps. So um, I think it's very important. You know, we all talk about patience with investments and the likes, but um, it, it's good to hear it on the other side. Um, what is one of the bigger challenges your clients say they face today? It used to be, you know, where do I get yield? Where do I get the return from without levering up and doing these things? Well, what are you hearing that you weren't hearing over the past couple of years? What's changed? Uh, I would say liquidity. Um, so the issue there is many clients or investors thought, you know, the fixed income markets are always super liquid and they could tap that market for liquidity to meet their, their needs on a monthly, quarterly basis. Um, what we've observed is as we need to raise money, the fixed income markets aren't always as liquid. And frankly, 
our clients S&P 500 index portfolio is one of the most liquid parts of their portfolio. If you really need to use liquidity, that's where they're going to go besides cash. Uh, so managing liquidity and is probably one of the biggest changes we've had over the last five years and planning for it. And of course, the markets will become volatile and less liquid when you actually need a larger amount from your base portfolio. It, it's always going to happen. So you have to plan for it. So I, I think about it today and, and you know, what people talked about in 2022 was that, you know, the, the private markets, you know, again, not to criticize them by any means, you know, they were flat and some haven't been marked down. And all of a sudden now, you know, with public markets being down, now you have a mismatch in some of the allocation, right? You, you're a little more overweight these areas because they've, by definition, outperformed. Um, and then you get capital calls because, again, they're seeing opportunities when the public market's able to do stuff. So how do you balance that out? And how do you think about that when establishing that private allocation? Because, you know, I, I know the advisors I've spoken with, they say, oh, yeah, well, we always take, you know, what we want in the private markets. We kind of double it because the calls are slow. It takes three to four years to get there. You, you know, they recycle capital, never get there. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, wait a second, maybe I got too much. So. Uh, it's part, it goes back to strategic uh, policy we set. And as part of that, we look at liquidity of our clients' programs and we run it through that dark sky scenario and say, okay, how illiquid could you actually become? Could you go from, let's say, 30% privates to 80% within a three-year period? And what do you do? What are the actions you take? Do you have to stop allocating to privates? We always recommend you keep a disciplined pacing approach to the private markets because you don't know when markets are going to be good or bad and to access the top managers. So it is, it is critical to look at a liquidity analysis that includes very stressed scenarios and because that's what we see. After 2022, you know, numerous institutional investors are, I want to say, 50% overweight their private targets, if not in some cases, might be 2x. And if... Yeah. <laughs> If you didn't plan properly, that's where you find yourself in a hole, and you then you're doing secondaries and you're, you know, paying to sell stuff, and it's very painful. Yeah, and the whole reason you bought it in the first place, now you're really shooting yourself in the foot because you didn't think about some of these scenarios, right? Yeah, and we always want a bit of dry powder just to take advantage of those opportunities as well. All right, so last question on the dry powder front. Um, you know, so we hear from a lot of folks, uh, tea bill and chill is the phrase that I keep hearing around from our salespeople. Take the tea bill and chill. What do you think of that? Um, and how are you thinking about cash in your clients' portfolios? Well, fortunately, we've had a couple of conversations with clients. It, you know, we've kept cash really to minimum the last 10 plus years. Let's call it frictional, 1%, half a percent, maybe one half percent. Now to meet their, their needs, we can say, oh, let's we can have two, three percent, maybe you can go up four or five um, and you're meeting your needs. But we, we expect over the long term, markets will revert. You should earn more by going out longer term, whether it's in the public fixed income markets, whether it's in the equity markets or you go in the private markets, then you should from cash. So it's being ready to, to redeploy. And you know, that we won't see the yield curve inverted forever. We haven't seen it occur yet. Um, so it's really being disciplined and having a formulaic approach to deploy that cash into the marketplace. 
All right, okay, on that. So if we don't see the inverted yield uh, forever, how does it uninvert? How does it? Well, unfortunately, it looks like uh, it will take a recession to do so. And the Fed lowering the front part of the yield curve, um, or frankly, the world coming to realize that uh, rates on intermediate and longer term debt need to go up because uh, cash will continue to pay you five. So. Okay. Well, this a, a bit yesterday, though, Russ. I'm looking at the board right now. It's kind of crazy. We have a 60% uh, plus T-bill out there at the June 15th. As of right now, it's, it's 609, which is pretty amazing. I mean, when you think about it, just do, if you're willing to do that X-date dance too, right? I guess yes. uh, you, you can kind of get paid for it, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what's the carry on that trade, Lau? 40 basis points? Because, you know, we don't get a full month, so you make yeah. a whole... Basis points in, so don't get too seduced by that six handle number. Uh, you got to think about by the different days you own it as well. So definitely can't annualize that. <laughs> yeah, well, they did, they did annualize it, but you All don't right. get it anymore. <laughs> you know, those, those bond risks are always tricky. So, hey, Russ, thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we wanted to really just kind of uh, elucidate people on, on what you know. Again, what, what you've come from in a consulting role, I know you do so much on the manager research side as well. So for those who are more interested in, in you, Russ, and the things you do over at Aon, uh, what's the best way that they could reach out to you or get in touch with you for your services? Uh, best way is uh, email me. It's russ.ivanjack at aon.com. Happy to connect. Okay, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, you can see how to spell Ivan Jack. Uh, that way we can uh, make sure you can see that as well. So, Russ, many thanks. We appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. We know you have to get back at it. So um, we're going to let you go. But before we do, I have to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. All right, Russ. And that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. It is where I will offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Jeff Sherman with the hopes of getting a top of mind response. So I'm going to kick it off to Sherman first to uh, lead the way with U.S. Treasuries. Interesting. Um, you know, there, there's something for everybody. You know, there's for your T-bill and chills. You know, you got your 609s that you're talking about there. Sounds like we're throwing up area codes or something. Um, you know, you got your long bond with the, almost a four handle today. Um, so there's something for everyone out there in that market where, you know, uh, again, you can express a view on something and you can also get some, uh, either you can earn money on your dry powder, as Russ said, or you can build something to kind of offset some of your other risk out there in the marketplace. So. Um, you know, as our Govy guy usually tells us, there's something for everyone in treasuries. That's right. All right, I'm going to give you one here, Russ, with, uh, let's go with 2% inflation target Fed. Sounds like a hypothetical in that it's... it appears it's going to take a lot longer to get inflation down to 2% than the Fed would like. And I think they're just being stubborn by not admitting that they may have to move up that target to two and a half or three. Yeah, I like it. Sherman, OPEC production cuts. 
Oh no, they're threatening them today, aren't they? Or they're they're threatening that they're going to crush the shorts, right? What what was the 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 Saudi energy minister say today that um, you know the short speculators are going to be uh, hurting? It was some like yeah, salacious. Said, watch headline. out! And I think uh, he said used the word "ouchie" in there. Ouchie, <laughs> so, yeah. And, yeah. and not the, that rhymes with Fauci, right? The ouchie, uh, <laughs> you know. But but the thing is, is that um, you know their last uh, cuts didn't really do much. We're, we're sitting right where oil was essentially when they announced the last run of cuts. So um, cuts are always difficult to do to ensure compliance there, unless it's them being the Saudis doing it. Um, so you know, I, I'm not scared. Yeah, scared money don't make no money, as uh, someone on our desk once said. All right, here, uh, back to you, Russ, with uh, let's go with artificial intelligence in investing. It's been in place for a number of years. Many firms have used it. I think it's going to be extended. Uh, but I'll go back to if everybody's using it, the advantage will be arbitraged away. It's the sandbox, right? Yeah. yeah. Speaking of sandboxing, and we need some refilling here, perhaps, but uh, refilling the strategic petroleum reserve. Uh, don't put sand in it, you know. <laughs> uh, do it at a lower price. Do we really need to do? Do we really need to refill it? Um, you know, look, uh, what, what is at its peak, Sammy? You, you know the fundamentals of it better. Is it like eighteen days of supply in the U.S.? Is it something like, or is it even that much, that many days? Right when it's completely yeah. full. Yeah. I. So one of the rules, I believe, if memory serves, is when they actually have to start refilling it is when it goes below, I want to say, five days of net exports uh, ability, which right now um, we are uh, a net exporter. So or I'm sorry, net import ability. So it's uh, we're a net exporter right now. So basically, there is no need to refill, as you say, yeah. uh, the, the, the SBR. So. There's no rush, I suppose, at this point. Yeah. All so, right, so I turned it back on you. That's that's uh, That was really clever of me. Pretty good. Hmm. Let's see here. I'm going to pass it over to Russ then, you know, hot potato with the uh, risk-off trade. What's the best asset, I suppose, is the, is the, the question there. Best asset for a risk-off trade? Oh, I would just say cash. All right. It's been so long that cash has paid you so much. My checking account actually is paying me some interest. I'm like surprised when I get my statement these days. We'll keep it under 250, Russ. <laughs> that, remember, that's what we all, we all yeah. were reminded yeah. of recently. Keep it under 250. And yeah, I mean, $250. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's better than the basis point I'm earning. So let's see. Back to you, Sherman. Emerging market debt. I'm so conflicted on this, you know, because um, I, I'm going to say um, I'm going to I'm going to stay away from it now. There's too much love for it, as, as Russell was pointing out on these things. He wasn't talking about EMD, um, but ultimately, you know, so many people are just saying the dollar's peaked and everything, and I'm just concerned if we do have a U.S. recession. Uh, I think that the spreads do not compensate you in emerging market debt for that risk today, and so I know it's been very popular. Um, there are probably some individual countries on the local currency side that do look interesting, specifically in LATAM, but thematically, 480 spread just doesn't sound like something I want to jump into for that kind of, uh, even, even the dollar-denominated risk today. So um, I'd like it at a better level, but um, that's why we, we've been underweight for a bit here. All right, Russ, default. One word answer would be annoyed. 
just get it done. It's been done 43 times before. Um, I understand the posturing, but let you know, let's move on. Agreed. Sherman, Cold War. You say Gold War or the Cold War? I did say Cold War, but uh, Gold War sounds interesting as well. Yeah. How about gold, both? Gold struggling, you know, it's uh, it's that support in 1980 can't get back above it. So uh, not really a big fan of it. I think rates, rates have been its uh, big headwind there. Uh, but Cold War, I mean, aren't we always fighting when it feels like? You know, it's either a proxy war or a Cold War. So war's big business. And, uh, you know, uh, um, yeah, I'm just going to pass on the rest of that. I'm going to stick with my Gold War. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. Wrap this up here, Russ, with uh, let's go with bank lending. Bank lending. So you, you're, I guess I'm referring to providing capital to banks right now at this point in time, which um, I think the big banks, obviously that's probably a pretty safe bet. The regional banks, it's really going to be hard to uncover what people have and how much what's on their books at this point in time and how much they're overextended given how quickly their depositor base could go away. Yeah, I'm just I, I don't see how you renew any any revolver or you renew any any line that's out there today. I, I don't know how you originate anything yet. So um yeah, I'm just to me that's one of the bigger risks out there in the marketplace because uh you know that that's where the credit impulse comes from. So um, but let's not end on a dire note. Let's end happy. So, um, you know, Russ, thanks for joining us today. Uh, again, for those of you that forgot from the beginning, because you uh, we were so uh, entertaining today, that's Russ Ivanjack. Uh, he's the senior partner and the global CIO over at Aon and also in charge of their manager research. So, Russ, thanks again for joining us today. We really appreciate it and uh, look forward to seeing you on your next trip out to the Double Line offices in L.A. All right. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate being part of the show. All right. Take care. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2023, Double Line Capital.